0: Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast.
1: Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. Thank you for joining us and listening today. Um, we're going to turn the tables a little bit today, even though we you know, focus on exporting here. We're going to chat with a longtime import professional who can give us perspective, you know, from a custom broker's viewpoint. I am very honored to have as our guest today, John T. Hyatt, clearance manager for CH Powell Company, joining us from Metairie, Louisiana. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Well, fine. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me. Uh- and Metairie is a little suburb of New Orleans, you go to the I-10 and you're in Metairie before you blink.
1: <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little bit about New Orleans today, uh, one of my favorite cities. Now, as I understand it, you're a native of New Orleans, is that correct?
2: Uh, I was born at Hotel Du Hospital on October 8,
1: 1944. All right, That's, that sounds official. Um, so let's, uh, you know, want to talk a little bit about you, get to know you a little bit uh, before we get into some of the other issues and, and uh, stories. First of all, tell us a little bit about your family background because uh, you come from a exporting business. It seems like.
2: Well, what 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 happened? Uh, you know, going back uh, some years, uh, my grandfather and his brothers uh, at the. Uh, end of World War One migrated to Central America and set up um, exporting operations out of uh, Central America, basically working with Standard Fruit and some of their operations. So mm-hmm. there's a long history of uh, being involved in international business uh, from way back when.
1: Right. Now, was it mostly bananas or were there other fruits as well? Do you know? I just well, it was
2: mostly bananas, but also there was a lot of, uh, you know, exports going down to Central America because they had to build up their infrastructure, you know, right. waterworks systems, telephone lines, all that sort of thing. So it was all sort of interconnected, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Vaquero family was the originators of standard fruit, which later became Dole fresh fruit. But they were right. headquartered in, in New Orleans and basically homesteaded down in, in Honduras and, and essentially uh, – you know, built up, you know, those areas uh, very mm-hmm. significantly. Unlike uh, um, their competitors, the Boston Fruit Company, Chiqui, which sort of like went in and were like bandits and took what they could and, and left without leaving anything behind, so to speak, but.
1: Oh, boy, was- uh, so I imagine New Orleans, uh, well, they, they're they close to both companies, but I imagine they have a, a, a place in their heart for the Dole Fruit Company, it sounds like. Oh,
2: yeah, well, you know, they, they established a number of different things here back into the 20s, you know, car yeah. dealerships, insurance companies, laundry companies, ice houses, all that sort of thing here in the New Orleans area, oh. basically to uh, further their business.
1: Yeah, deep roots. It's, uh, was, um, it's clear. So now uh, tell us just a little bit about your education, and then uh, I want to talk about Irwin Brown Company after that. First, uh, uh, just a little bit about your education.
2: Well, I, I got an uh, undergraduate degree in uh, liberal arts at the, uh, what was then called LSU NO, Louisiana State University in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was in 68 and then uh, of course in 68 basically most people were being drafted if they weren't uh, going into veterinary science or medicine. So I kind of volunteered which, you know, that happens. Uh, Went over there, came back, you know, have all my parts intact, which was good.
1: Thank you. And, uh,
2: then did uh, a, a master's program at, then it was called the University of New Orleans. They changed the name. So I got a master's degree in history, graduated in 75, I believe it was, mm-hmm. August of 75. Went out to find a real job because there were really no positions in teaching because uh, basically The post-war baby boom was over and a lot of universities weren't hiring uh, new instructors, that sort of thing. So yeah, I sort of stumbled into this business by accident, Uh, the uh, Customs House brokerage business. Uh, I initially went to work for the Erin Brown Company and actually August 6, 1975, the reason I remember that, it was August 6, which is also the same day that we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. No relation, though.
1: Oh my goodness. Wow, you know, uh, I I think there's a lot of people that can say we kind of fell into this business. Uh, You know, my background's kind of similar. I have a history degree, undergraduate, and I kind of fell into the steamship side of the business. So that's, I think it's kind of common for in those days, how you got into the business. There was a management training program, but you know, those were no, the... you,
2: you, learned it, you learned it mostly by osmosis, as they say.
1: Exactly. And, uh, and interestingly
2: enough, in the old days, before the uh, Internet and everything else, you just waited for what came through the transom on Monday morning. Exactly. So was your first position
1: with Erwin Brown?
2: That is correct. I, I was brought in as the uh, traffic manager, not knowing a thing about traffic and having <laughs> learn my way through it. But one thing I found out very interestingly enough is that in order to secure a new business, it required that you, we needed to go out and actually meet, you know, prospective vendors, that sort of thing, and do some traveling. So uh, very you know, early, we started, you know, doing some uh, uh, traveling overseas, you know, finding new connections, that sort of thing, and building up the business that way.
1: Oh, that must have been very, very interesting, uh, very exciting, uh, I'm sure. And and I'm sure there was still some pioneer work that had to be done to, to, to develop smooth systems. You seem to have a unique perspective and a deep knowledge of the history of the Port of New Orleans. I was just wondering if you have any favorite stories about the history of the Port of New Orleans that you'd like to share with us.
2: Well, I, you know, I found it rather rather interesting that, you know, New Orleans, of course, you know, was the, the entreport uh, for basically the Mississippi Valley uh, in the early days um, before we even became a state. And uh, uh, luckily Thomas Jefferson decided to buy us along with every place <laughs> else west of the Mississippi River So yes. under the Louisiana Purchase. So like someone said, for $15 million, the uh, cost of what you could spend on a modest uh, florida hotel he did pretty well <laughs> and uh we uh we prospered as a result uh it, it, it's always interesting to me that you know people don't realize the uh validity you know the importance of the louisiana purchase but basically it you know it established the united states more than anything else because prior to that we were just you know coastal areas um east of the appalachian mountains and this you know brought us further into uh our natural well, i guess Manifest destiny, as you would call it. Right. And interestingly enough, you know, New Orleans became a port mainly because of the fact um, that um, we dealt with a number of different commodities that were already there. You know, the bananas coming in, which started basically in the 18, uh, actually the 1860s. But prior to that, we were able to. Etienne de Bore was a Frenchman who would, and discovered the way to granulate sugar. And there's big sugar plantations in the area. And so by granulating sugar, you can go ahead and ship it uh, as crystalline uh, instead of as molasses, that sort of thing. And, of course, coffee uh, became a very big import. And then in the uh, early 20th century, with the expansion of the Great Plains and the Wheat Belt, a lot of wheat and grain came down the Mississippi for export out of the United States. So it was a number of different you know, angles of trade coming from different directions that uh, basically made the port prosper.
1: Um, Is uh, cane sugar still a product that's produced in large quantities in Louisiana or is most of that imported now?
2: No, it's still, uh, you know, cane sugar is still a prospect. The problem with, with sugar, every developed nation has a sugar policy of some sort. And essentially, most of the sugar is domestically consumed, but there's a small part of that which needs to be exported. And, you know, Louisiana, uh, unfortunately, has a large um, sugar base, and that sugar is protected. And that's why we always have a problem with free trade agreements where we've got to get throttled back and do some horse trading and saying, okay, let's open the market a little bit to sugar, because in response to that, we can go ahead and export poultry and pork and other products to other countries we're making free trade agreements with so it's always a a horse trading situation Uh, but basically louisiana was a truck gardening state way back in the early 20th century moving a lot of crops row crops in the winter time up to the northeast Uh, but when the petroleum industry came into louisiana a lot of those farmers basically uh, went into uh, the oil sector and uh, those family farms sort of passed into history.
1: Yes, yeah, Uh, and there's a lot of uh, products in agriculture that have have similar histories uh, in the U.S. and the South. You uh, have a lot of knowledge and involvement with the uh, DR-CAFTA trade agreement, and wasn't sugar one of the issues that made it difficult to pass Here in the U.S. Well,
2: uh, there were several issues that would make it difficult. One, of course, was the sugar trade, because basically uh, the entire Louisiana congressional delegation was, how shall I say, propagandized by the sugar barons of Louisiana that this Mm -hmm. would be the end of civilization as we know it if this uh, bill was passed. So there was a lot of questions about whether the DR CAFTA would be passed. And um, as I may have mentioned uh, I was on a trip to Washington at, right before the vote in Congress on the DR-CAFTA, and Gene Schreiber, the executive director of the World Trade Center, uh, called me at the airport and said, would I mind stopping into Representative Rod- Rodney Alexander's office uh, and see if I could convince him to vote in favor of the FTA? Uh, he was a representative from the northern part of the state and uh, uh-huh even though the rest of the members of the delegation were vehemently opposed to the agreement. I said, well, I'll see if I can see him. I don't know. So I went in. He gave me a half hour of his time. I pointed out uh, that some of his constituents in the northern part of the state, such as the poultry producers, Mm -hmm. the pork producers, and the cotton growers, would all benefit from this trade agreement because Mm -hmm. basically uh, one of the provisos, like in wearing apparel, is if you wanted to come in duty-free, you had to use U.S. cotton. So that was... The stick, you know, you use a stick yep. and a carrot on it, and that's what worked. Well, yep. eventually, you know, the uh, Congress voted 215, 217 to 215 for the agreement.
1: Wow. So it was only
2: one vote. If it had been 216 to 216, the vote would have failed. So I, I got labeled with the fact that I caused all this trouble and got DRCAFTA <laughs> CAFTA
1: passed. Or, or pride. So uh, for our listeners who don't know uh, DR CAFTA, it stands for, stands for Dominican Republic, Central America Central America
2: Free Trade Agreement. It, it covers the five countries of Central America, which is Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, um, El Salvador, and the Dominican Republic. Uh, Panama was not considered part of Central America, so their free trade agreement didn't come into effect until uh, several years later. I always kind of, you know, bristle at the word free trade because people construe that to mean we're giving away something, but we're not. Basically, we're making the trade a little fairer. Basically, we're doing a little horse trading. Okay, let us bring some of our products into your country and we'll, you know, do some, you know, horse trading on this end. And that's what it's involved. It's you know, it's a little give and take. Exactly.
1: Um, yeah. I, I yeah. I, I think uh, it is a misunderstood term, um, and it it allows export products to move uh, duty free or low duty as well as products coming in. So it, it it's supposed to be mutually beneficial. That is the idea. Maybe they're not all perfect, of course.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be some uh, wins and losses here. I mean, no one's going to. It's not. It's not always a win-win situation. Sometimes people have to be retrained to other you know, jobs. But this whole business about loss of jobs and everything else is a is a kind of a straw a straw man argument because you know basically um, we lost jobs because of technological advances. I mean, you don't. I mean, which office did you go into? Do you have, you know, a telephone operator anymore? It's all automated, you know, right. bank tellers too. You've got ATM machines out there, so you don't need all those bank tellers. Those jobs didn't go overseas. They just no longer existed because of technology. I exactly. mean, the only person that has the lifetime job is the janitor in some office building, that's it. But everybody else is gonna be subject to change of some
1: sort and they have to, you know, move with the times. Exactly, exactly, so, um, Tell us, uh, John, if you don't mind, can can you uh, talk a little bit about uh, your product experience and, and specialization that you've developed over the years? Well, what
2: we did was we looked at a, a number of different product lines, uh, working with importers, whatever. Uh, uh, one of our, we had a lot of this, what's called project cargo that we'd moved in like a, uh, paper making machinery that would come into the United States from these uh, uh, producers uh, in Germany or whatever the case may be. Uh, we brought in a large um, uh, mill to uh, basically convert uh, corn into ethanol. This was a uh, project uh, south of New Orleans. Uh, a number of different you know projects such as this that you know, essentially, sort of recreates the landscape as far as uh, what's available out there. Uh, at one point, uh, we brought in a lot of um, what's called um, ore, iron ore, from the Ukraine. The entire shiploads, 50,000 tons, would come up the Mississippi and be unloaded at some of these plants there, where they would basically refine that into actually uh, iron pellets that can go into uh, – Production of steel products, that sort of thing, washing machines and automobiles. Uh, so there's there's a lot of components that go into things. It it reminds me so much of the um, what's called the Miscellaneous Tariff Bill. The Miscellaneous Tariff Bill uh, was a bill, uh, like a three-year bill that would come into effect every three years. But in in 2012, it was basically shut down because they felt that uh, these these were uh, these uh, Congressional um, offtakes that that didn't satisfy things. So basically, the United States International Trade Commission took over this whole business of the miscellaneous tariff bill, which basically it allows reduction of tariffs on components that someone is importing into the United States to put into a product that will later be exported or a finished good that is not available domestically in the United States. And it gives you a tariff reduction. we're going through the next phase of it right now because the present phase goes from uh, 2017 to 2020. The end of 2020 a new fra- process will take place which will go from 2021 to 2023. That uh, The petition process has already been completed on that. It'll probably be passed in a lame duck session of Congress at the end of the election year um, depending upon whoever's going to be elected but that's, that's another story I won't go into that. But basically <laughs> it, it allows essentially uh, exporters, U.S. exporters to basically reduce their costs on what they're producing by bringing in component materials that can be incorporated into a finished good and exported. It makes them more competitive with other countries around the area who are, you know, selling to your same customers. And what so is that it, called? What is that program called? It's called the, the, the Miscellaneous Tariff Bill. MTV oh. is the initial for it. Okay. And, ba- and basically, like I said, it, um, it is scheduled. Um, it's already been gone through the review process. Now it's no longer, it's, you know, the U.S. Department of Commerce looks at it, Customs looks at it and said, yes, these products would uh, be good for um, this program. We'll let it go through. You know, one of the products that we try to get through uh, as a reduction, is a uh, commodity called glyphosate. Now, glyphosate is a herbicide. You know, essentially, uh, the brand name of it was Roundup that Monsanto oh, yeah. had to it, patented. And there's been a lot of give and take on that. But, you know, essentially, a lot of this business about it's a carcinogen or whatever is, is a little bit hocus-pocus. You know, Roundup uh, was basically uh, patented by Monsanto. The patent ran out in... 2000, so anybody and his brother can produce the product uh, and and bring it in. The problem is that it can only be produced overseas because to produce it in the United States, there's so many EPA requirements and clean water requirements that it's just unrealizable to produce it in the United States. But this is a product that's needed to basically prepare the fields because there are four different harvests throughout the United States, whether it's soybeans or corn, grain or uh, silage or whatever. That you need to prepare the fields for uh, some of the, uh, the products are what they're called uh, roundup resistant because basically you want to kill the weeds. You don't want to kill the actual crop you're growing. And right now at this point, Monsanto has been purchased by the German chemical company Bayer, which mm-hmm. just recently went ahead and decided to just get do do away with this whole business. And I think uh, settled for like $8 billion on all these suits from people who claim they had been you know harmed by glyphosate basically you're going to have to take a bath in glyphosate for 20 years before it really affects you but you know get a little carcinogen and in a laboratory mouse and all of a sudden you know the world ends but at any rate that's what's important is these are commodities that are used to keep the US agricultural industry going and it's a trade off too when we talk about this whole business with the pandemic and the lack of containers everything moves by container and a lot of the exports in the pacific northwest or silage hay which is compacted and compressed in containers and goes overseas to feed cattle herds pork herds, you know and every uh, all kind of the animals and uh, there has been a big problem at the end of march when a lot of product was not coming from China because they were in lockdown, and you had uh, exporters uh, in the U.S. that couldn't find containers to uh, put their product in. Uh, right. Luckily, the industry got going again. We've got a lot of our chemical importers that were bringing in these container loads of glyphosate, which you turn around and load hay in it or silage or whatever and send it back on the other side. The whole business of supply chains is important, and there's no real resiliency in the supply chain as demonstrated by the after effects or still the effects of the pandemic right now sure the resiliency has to be built in the supply chain so people are looking at different things how do we do this some, some can be by basically um, having surge protection um, the whole idea of what's called just-in-time inventory in other words You want to import product into the united states and get it into the supermarket shelves or whatever as soon as it comes in we don't want to put it in a warehouse somewhere right now there has to be an extra cost in the warehousing some of this stuff to make sure it's available and you won't have these uh these shortages uh either on one side or the other so that's that's another real issue that's going to be facing you know the industry the logistics industry you know, right. Going forward what,
1: uh, what is the current situation in New Orleans regarding availability of containers for export and uh, and uh, a product coming in? How late is it now well' what 's been, what's been good about
2: the Port of New Orleans is one of those um, interesting ports that always has had a good balance of import and export and the equipment to handle it unlike some ports where you know it's all import and there's nothing going out and you've got empty containers sitting around that have to be repositioned which right. is a cost i mean you'll have ships that may have 8000 containers on them but they're coming in and 5000 of those containers are empty containers just coming in to be repositioned to take on exports that it's the whole business of trying to get your supply chain just right because that's a cost someone has to bear somewhere along the way to move those containers to where they need to be gotten to to yeah. load product for export
1: most of the vessels that call new orleans are going to and from latin america isn't that correct or do you have some asian you know asian services there is
2: there is some asian service uh, there's a a couple of new uh, lines you know cma cgm the uh, french line has mm-hmm. a regular direct service from uh, Asia to um, uh, New Orleans. Uh, oh. Also, he calls it mobile too. Also, we have uh, SIM lines. Uh, the uh, Israeli, the Israeli line has a service in. As does um, uh, the. There's a Korean line too that has a service. So, the Asian service has really picked up. You know, for a while, we had very little Asian service. Um, but I think because of the fact that the Panama Canal has been enlarged. Right, And you've got ships that can come in there with three times the capacity that they used to have through the old locks. It's all a a business about, you know, volume. You know, if you can get sufficient volume in there, it makes sense to come through. So you've got a lot more traffic coming through the canal with larger container vessels that are calling. The problem we have with New Orleans after a certain point, like over 8,500 containers on a vessel we got a little bit of a um, what's called a clearance problem with the Mississippi River Bridge. You know, it's got a—I um, forget what it is—170 feet clearance. That's when water is
1: low. If water is high, the clearance is shorter. What so, What is this bridge? This is a bridge that the larger vessels have to go under to to well, get have to
2: go under to get to the terminals because the terminals okay. are located past the bridge, so I they see. have to go under the bridge to okay. get to the terminals. Uh New York solved this problem basically by taking the Bayonne Bridge and raising it 150 feet at a cost of, I think, 3 or $4 billion.
1: Yeah, Savannah, so can I think, did that as well many years ago.
2: And, uh, well, you know, basically when you're looking at New York, which is a great, you know, consumer center, you know, they needed to do that because yeah. you know, they've got a lot of goods coming in that they've got to serve that entire megalopolis.
1: Right. Right. Well, I imagine it's an issue when there's an imbalance and a ship is going out that's not full, it's, or or yeah, that, it, that it's higher in the water. But I guess you just, it depends on the tide and all that kind of thing. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, the other thing too is just basically uh, vessel calls that, you know, was supposed to call, but it became what's called a blank sailing. A blank sailing means that they just didn't put a ship into the service that week because these ships have weekly services out of the Far East or whatever. And if there's not sufficient cargo to warrant, you know, moving that ship, they're just going to cancel the sailing, which leaves no equipment on this end to go ahead and put export loads in. So that's where you get the, the conundrum of just trying to, you know, find the equipment to put the export loads in and moving the freight around. And that's exactly what's happening right now with this current investigation. Uh, Rebecca Dye of the FMC has been looking at various port terminals. She was on the West Coast. She's now on the East Coast of New York, and she's going to come to New Orleans to look at what we need to do to make ourselves more resilient. And, you know, one of the things, you know, simple things to look at, you pick up a loaded container at one steamship line terminal, but then you've got to bring the empty back to another terminal, which makes no sense whatsoever because then you're wasting time. If you can bring that empty back to the same terminal and then get a load coming out, everybody wins. But it's just these uh, these work rules and everything else and where the terminals have to get together and figure out how do we make these things work better for everybody.
1: Now, is this, this um, phenomenon of shipping lines canceling Sailings—is that something fairly new with the pandemic, or has that been happening over many years?
2: Uh, in in the uh, basically, uh, there, there's a certain time of the year right before the Christmas rush, where you've got a lot of ships moving, bringing in goods in the United States for Christmas time, holiday time, uh, and there may be what a few blank sailings, and there will be blank sailings. Uh, a Chinese New Year a couple of times, right but the blank sailings this year are much larger and much greater because of the fact that there 's been no manufacturing in China while they were locked down for basically two months right but now they 're up to production, and the problem right now is they they 're up to full production almost but are there people to buy the product here in the United States? That's the question. I mean, you've got people that are relying on this $600 a week, plus whatever they're getting from local unemployment, buying things, but that's gonna dry up unless Congress does something very quickly. And so it's a kind of a fragile market.
1: It is, it is indeed. Um, Yeah, and um, um, it's just something we're gonna be watching. A lot of concern as this thing drags on for a while. I just want to look back for a minute. I'd love to hear some stories, you know, some of the projects that you've worked on over the years. Do you have uh, some stories you'd like to share with us about something that went crazy or just something unexpected? I mean, I know you probably have... A million of them, but we, we well, love them. Well, there's that,
2: that, well, an interesting story that we have. Uh, there, there's a product called Anato Seed. Anato Seed basically is grown in Mexico and down in the tropics as far as Brazil. Mm-hmm. Well, Anato Seed um, some time back became a good substitute for red dye number two, which was banned by the FDA as being a carcinogen. So Anato Seed acts as a colorant to basically... Uh, Color the margarine the butter and you know ver- various snack foods that sort of thing mm-hmm. and at one point uh, we brought in like six container loads of Anado seed from it may have been jamaica i'm not quite sure where but uh, it came into the u.s uh into the port of new orleans and was found to be uh, infested let's put it that way so,
1: infested i oh, oh boy
2: Well, basically what we did was we unloaded all six of these uh, containers at a local warehouse, a big pile of these seeds, and uh, essentially we're waiting for buyers. I mean, basically it was fumigated a couple of times, but uh, like I was told by certain uh, professional fumigators, you know, you've got any kind of product like this, and uh, after a month you've got to fumigate it again because the they keep coming out, you know, there's critters. Well, what kind
1: of vermin are we talking about?
2: <laughs> A little pests, whatever bugs, I, I guess, this sort of thing. But, you know, essentially uh, they were looking for buyers because the kind of people who would buy this would be someone like McCormick uh, or one of the other um, flavoring companies. And uh, it was finally purchased and they sent it into other channels and uh, cleaned it up, let's put it that way. But another product that was interesting to us was also niger seed niger seed or thistle is a seed that's grown basically in the indian subcontinent Mm -hmm. and essentially if you want to in the winter time if you want to attract songbirds to your feeder whatever you've got to feed them niger seed Um, problem with niger seed is uh, and produced in these areas when it comes into the united states the u.s department of agriculture says that it's infected with daughter which is a weed pest which could kill the corn crop in the United States. Oh, no.
1: That so consequently, be- it
2: has to be treated somehow. So um,
1: yeah.
2: there are two different uh, ways to treat it. One in New Jersey where they just ran the seed over some hot blades to kill the dot or whatever, but it didn't, didn't do much for the seed anyway. Um, yeah. We developed yeah. something here in New Orleans with a warehousing company and brought in uh, a system from australia which was basically a fluid bed system where you would pour the seeds in one end and it would basically circulate the seeds in hot air and rush them through the system and they come out the other end clean as a whistle cool and it said the songbirds would line up to eat this and uh it worked but uh, it was interesting but it's it's tons and tons of the stuff that comes in and there's just a lot of bird fanciers in the united states that want this seed
1: yeah i wasn't familiar with that you could you said they call it thistle is that one of them Yeah, but
2: niger a thistle is also the name niger oh, okay. seed. okay
1: really interesting you had not heard that before well let's see a couple of things i wanted to ask you about first of all you had said something about you did some consultancy for USAID in Nicaragua that was in the late 90s. You want to tell us a little bit about that? That sounds awfully interesting.
2: Well, that was when the fat man was in power in Nicaragua. And uh, essentially, um, uh, I was asked to go down to USAID to look at the possibility of developing a soft wood pulp export business out of... um, of Central America to handle uh, you know some of the uh, the needs here because basically softwood pulp um, had been declining. I mean Louisiana was a big producer of softwood pulp, right. but that had gone down. So we were looking at a way to to develop that. And uh, I went uh, down to uh, Nicaragua, it flew into Managua, and then uh, went over to uh, blue fields on the coast which was interesting cuz blue fields was actually where my mother and her five sisters were living in a convent school uh during the 20s back oh. there, away from the coast back away from them bad boys and so the <laughs> convent school was taking care of them and then i took one of these uh what they call river rat ships uh that call in miami you know they have old school buses stuffed with toilet paper whatever and we went up the rio <laughs> escondito river uh and uh up to um, a place called Arlen Sioux, which was um, the port. Uh, they also call it Rama. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like going way back into the 30s. I mean, old wooden buildings, whatever, just to look at uh, what the infrastructure was. Um, but the road to Rama from Managua was, was, was very solid because essentially um, that road was built by U.S. Uh, Army engineers at the behest of the Roosevelt administration as a favor to uh, samosa. Uh, Roosevelt said, samosa may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. I don't know if you can (laughs) bleep that out or whatever. But uh, so there was that old relationship there. Uh, The the industry never developed as such. We looked at the pulpwood industry, uh, went ahead and presented this report to a number of the big uh, pulp paper people, and uh, it just never got off the ground. But it was an interesting experiment nonetheless.
1: I bet, I bet. Um, this is uh, a little changing tracks, but you seem to have kind of an amazing survival story from Katrina. Do you mind talking about that? I, well, it was, it was kind of interesting because, you know, I live out in New Orleans
2: East, uh, which is the eastern, obviously the eastern part of the city. And uh, mm-hmm. we decided that we don't hang in for um, uh, Katrina, thinking we can um, survive it, so to speak. And uh uh, the winds died down after about eight o'clock in the morning and didn't look too bad. But then looking out the front window, the water started rising rather rapidly and uh, cars started floating down the street. And that wasn't a good sign whatsoever.
0: Right. And, um,
2: eventually, um, the water came into the house and uh, we evacuated to the, uh, attic, spent the night up in the attic and, uh, just, uh, decided, well, we had to get out. And, uh, Try to get a boat from the next door neighbor uh, that was hooked up to a trailer but couldn't get that. out. But so we were, uh, uh, the fire department was picking up people in the neighborhood and dropping us off on Chef Tour Highway. That's why I call it a highway. It's higher than the other areas. Oh,
1: uh, Were you on the roof? Is that where you were rescued? No,
2: no, not on the roof. No, I was actually in the attic when we came back down and oh. uh, got out through the kitchen door. No, I wasn't oh. on the roof. I, I didn't, I didn't. Go through that exercise, but uh, so we we got into uh, a an old church that was sitting on on the highway, and uh, someone uh, commandeered a few tourist buses, and uh, a group of us made it up to Baton Rouge, and then scattered to the full winds. Uh,
1: wow! Wound
2: up, my wife and I wound up in uh, in Memphis, um,
1: which uh, is where uh, I am. That's at, where at I am
2: uh, V. Alexander, because we had done business sure. with V. Alexander, and uh, essentially we. Uh, Retrieved from our computers from New Orleans and set up temporary offices at V. Alexander to run our business that was still going on but it was it was crazy because first of all our business was diverted to uh, Florida but then there was a hurricane in Florida then it was diverted to Houston and there was a hurricane in Houston and you yeah. had to chase your business back and forth it, it got really crazy.
1: Well I'm so glad everything worked out for you. I have friends who ended up being permanent residents in Memphis from because of Katrina, Uh, but I can't imagine going through that that scary time. But so how do you think I mean, from what I hear and see New Orleans is a wonderful, wonderfully recovered city now. Uh, Do you still feel there are remnants of Katrina that haven't been fixed or survived well or you know well you you can
2: go through certain neighborhoods and you'll see what they call the uh, jack o lantern effect. which mm-hmm. is a nice house here but then there's a house here that's obviously you know gutted and uh, no one's done anything about it but that's basically because of the uh, the population mix. You had a an older population that was living in certain parts of the New Orleans East. Mm-hmm. Who had retired, and they decided we're not going back, you know, and that's it. So those houses just sat there, and were never really um, you know, purchased by anyone, and uh, are still sitting there. And you know, they something needs to be done with them. There's a needs to be a city uh, renovation plan, but um, that yeah. hasn't happened yet. I've got a little problems with the city because we still have a hotel sitting on Rampart Street that's half collapsed. There's Ooh. still a couple of bodies in the building. They haven't got <gasps> out. And, Gosh,
1: uh, pardon me for... for
2: <laughs> I mean, what, what should have happened shock, at the beginning, but... what should have happened at day one is basically they should have went in there when the building collapsed, take it all down and not sit around dithering. That's what happened. They sat around dithering and dithering and dithering. Yeah. It just made the problem worse. And, you know, insurance companies know what they do. When they go in there, fix it and make the cost as little as possible. they right. get it taken care of. But they didn 't let the insurance companies come in there to do what they what they do, basically, they send you know people in there to look at it and said okay what 's the quickest way to end this misery?" And they do it
1: yeah um, well it's you know it was quite a traumatic moment for the whole country, uh, but nothing compared to what the people had to live through so i 'm glad it worked for you. At this time, now we're going through a a pandemic.
2: We were all locked in for nearly three months and easing out, and now we've got to ease back in because, you know, essentially it looks like the younger people decided this is time to go out because most of the infections now are with younger people, not the older people. And they don't realize that this can go on and on and on unless people knuckle down.
0: Right. The only way
2: you can knuckle down is you've got to get – whoever's the head man of this country, to say, wear a mask.
1: Wear a mask. Uh, you have to go through a period where you uh, stay at home, and then you can start coming back by tracing the small pockets of of infection and controlling it that way. It just isn't happening, unfortunately. But,
2: yeah, it, 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 you know, it, if you can keep it below 10%, you can you know, move on. But, you know, right. you, 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 these are you've got to, well, you know, maybe they'll come up with a virus, a, you know, a vaccine at the end of the year, we would hope, which would solve all the problems, because right now it's um, it, it's all pockets, you know, because each yeah. state's doing their own thing, and it's
1: you know, yeah
2: not working as such, and it this, this affects international trade, this affects our economy, and uh, someone's got to realize that um, if we're going to move forward, uh, there's going to be, a,
1: someone yeah. has to take the
2: bull by the horns.
1: Is the port of New Orleans... Uh, what percentage of activity would you say they're at, at this right now? This is
2: Right now, the, the wow. commercial side, they're at full-blown full uh, full capacity. The problem is the cruise ship industry, which was a nice piece of their business, that's, that's gone. I mean, it's, oh, until the vaccine comes about, no one's going to get on a ship.
1: Right. I think there are ships tied up all over this world, uh, cruise ships, and I hope they're not still crew members uh, that are stuck on those ships. I understand, you know, some of these ships, the crew members have to stay, somebody has to stay on the ship and, you know, keep them up,
2: problem. Well, that's the same problem with the commercial ships, because basically a lot of the crews, the commercial ships are Philippines. They've got Mm -hmm. three month contracts and once the three month contracts and basically that steamship line repatriates them back to their home country. But a lot of these countries won't even allow you off the ship and people are sitting there and, and can't get repatriated. So it's it's a real issue that's gonna to have to be addressed.
1: That sounds so frightening to me to just, just be stuck and just, you can't get off. You're not allowed at any port, you know, as a human. I just think, that <laughs> really frightening, but, um, yeah, this thing's going for a while, so, um, John, I just want to tell you what a, a pleasure it's been to speak to you, you have so much experience, and oh, one thing I wanted to explain, because I don't think I explained this, you were with Erwin uh, Brown for a long time, and how recently did they become part of CH Pal? I just thought we might mention. Well, it
2: was at the beginning of 2018. Uh, we decided essentially, um, you know, I was a shareholder at Irwin Brown, and mm-hmm. the majority mm-hmm. shareholder at Irwin Brown decided he wanted to retire. And uh, we had an offer from C.H. Powell that would basically take our entire team, the import department, and uh, put us in their existing office, which is on Causeway Boulevard. They had an export division here, but they didn't have an import division.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh,
2: it worked out well. We just came and fit yeah. right in. And uh, they busted a hole into the wall well, and renovated the offices. And so we were sort of like taking off over most of the fourth floor of the uh, Causeway um, Tower here. Oh, cool. And it's worked out very well. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, the transition was a little rocky to begin with, but it's always like that. You've got to learn new systems, uh, new computer systems, that sort of thing. But uh, in essence, it's been, it's been a good, uh, a good uh, move.
1: Well, good. I, I just want to mention that. Um, and are you, uh, are most people working out of the office or are most people working remotely right now?
2: Well, we have such a large office here that we can actually keep, you know, uh, social distances without any problem whatsoever. Uh, and, you know, I've got a procedure to come in every morning. I wipe yeah. down everything, you know, the, the, yeah. the, the doorknobs, the flush plates, uh, the computer machines uh the, the the fax machines the copy machines wipe down every surface cuz basically that's where it, it lands you know what they call the fomites so yeah. we we keep a very clean environment here and uh oh. essentially uh we uh we're lucky so far uh some of yeah. our other offices uh most of them uh depending on their South Carolina office I think most of them are, are operating from home remotely. We can operate remotely if we have to. right? And uh, it's, um, without the internet, we could never have done this, really.
1: Of course, of course. Well, I, I'm hoping after this thing is all over, we all have developed some fabulous hygiene practices. So uh, we'll be really good at it.
2: <laughs> for, well, I always find it rather uh, interesting, but... Uh, I think there were some studies done that showed that 40% of people who use the bathroom do not wash their hands afterwards. I think that's changing.
1: I I pray, so minimal, so minimal. Well, John, you've been so generous with your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate your sharing your experience with us. Uh, I'm just gonna say to our listeners, That we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode and you know even more general discussions about exporting and trade please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com you can go to the contact page and ask questions or post comments i'm happy to post uh, post them for you and we are also on twitter We're, you know, creating a community of exporters here and this is a great forum to talk about the dramatic events that are affecting our supply chains, our logistics, our transportation and our customers. So thank you uh, to everyone who was listening today and John, thanks
0: again for being such a great guest. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting.